The book of Zechariah was written by the prophet Zechariah sometime between 520 and 470 BC. During the return to Israel from Babylon, Zechariah works alongside Haggai to motivate God's people into righteous action. The people were preparing to see the fulfillment of God's covenant promises, a messianic king that would lead the nation to be a blessing to the entire world. But as it stands, it doesn't feel likely. The prophet Zechariah responds, offering insight into Israel's current state through a series of bizarre parables. Zechariah addresses the sin of their ancestors and argues that God's coming kingdom will be tied to the current generation's obedience. Zechariah closes with vivid images of the Messiah approaching Jerusalem, only to be rejected by the people and their leaders. Yet in his goodness, God will reform their hearts through repentance to join in his new kingdom. Zechariah puts forward an invitation for God's recently redeemed exiles to participate in obedience and reverence as they await God's promises. What does it mean to be clean? Um, Depending on who is in your household, you might have very different definitions of what that means. I have younger boys, and often a question that is asked in our household is, when was the last time you took a shower or a bath? Or maybe parents can relate with, if you have young boys, your standard of what clean is is very different than theirs. Sometimes you'll be like, you need to go take a bath, and they'll come back. and be like, did you take a bath? And they're like, yeah. And you're like, why is your hair not wet? <laughs> Who? Did you use soap? Did you use shampoo? Often our standards of what clean is are very, very different, aren't they? Or maybe you and your spouse have very different definitions of what it means to have a clean room. If you were to talk to my wife, you would realize that we have very different standards of what it means for our room to be clean, and she has far higher standards than I do. (laughs) Or maybe you have a roommate who said, oh yeah, I cleaned, and you walked, and you're like, is this a joke? We often have different standards of what clean is. But here's a question that I think should drive our time in Zechariah chapter 3 this morning. What does it mean to be clean before the Lord? Or what does it mean to be morally or spiritually clean? How do I know whether I'm clean in that way? See, the book of Zechariah is a contemporary prophecy of the book of Haggai that we looked at last week. God used Zechariah and Haggai to help the people rebuild the temple during the initial resettlement of Jerusalem under Zerubbabel, who was a descendant of David, and Joshua, who was a high priest. But that's about where their uh, overlapping ends. Because if you read Haggai and you read Zechariah, you'll realize that they read incredibly differently. First of all, Haggai is two chapters, and Zechariah is 14. Second, there's a certain directness about Haggai that's refreshing. It's four words from the Lord and the people's response. It says, God says, this is what I want you to do, and they do it. But if you open up Zechariah, you'll see that it's filled with a bunch of different apocalyptic dreams and visions that he has, at least in the first six chapters. And as we read them in 21st century America, it seems really foreign and just frankly kind of weird. 
And so what are we to make of one of these prophetic apocalyptic visions that we read in Zechariah chapter 3? Now I can explain the difference or I could just read it and you can experience it yourself. So Zechariah chapter 3, only 10 verses long. You know, two months with a cough and I'm getting better at the mute button. You're welcome. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this brand plucked is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments, and the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And, he said to him or, and to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments, and the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, Thus says the Lord of hosts, if you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts. And I will give you the right, the right of access among those who are standing here. Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts. And I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. And all God's people said, amen. A little different, huh? Let me set the scene. It's a dream. And so we would expect maybe some different or weird things to happen in a dream. But this dream gives an incredibly powerful message not only to Joshua the high priest and the people of his day, but to you and I. So the scene is we have Joshua the high priest and he's pictured in a courtroom of sorts. He's standing before the angel of the Lord, or the angel of Yahweh, who functions here as both judge and defense attorney, and speaks on behalf of Yahweh the Lord. And then there's an accuser, Satan, whose name literally means the accuser, who has no audible lines, but is there to be rebuked by Yahweh through the angel of the Lord. Now Joshua is the high priest, and he's standing there in the courtroom, on behalf of the people, because as priest, he would stand and he would intercede or mediate on behalf of a sinful people before a holy God. He is the one who would offer sacrifices and make atonement for their sin, for instance, on the Day of Atonement. But Joshua has a problem, doesn't he? He's filthy. He's wearing soiled garments. Now, the English translators step back the Hebrew a little bit here. The language used here is that these clothes were soiled with excrement. That's right, he's got poop on his clothes. But this means something more than just like dirty clothes. It is a, a metaphor about the spiritual or moral state of the people. The, the priest would have been declared ceremonially unclean and unable to to do his priestly duties in the temple. So in light of that, do you see the problem? 
the high priest, the one who is supposed to serve as a priest and mediator between sinful people and their God, is himself sinful and unclean. Now, when we say sinful, we mean simply that we have disobeyed God. We have not walked with him. We have not worshipped him as we ought. And the people of God were sinful, just like we are. So the question is, who's then going to make intercession for the people? Who can mediate between a sinful people and a holy God? See, they might have obeyed in building the temple, and they did. But without the Lord's presence filling it and the priesthood offering sacrifices on their behalf, it's just a building with bricks and stone and mortar. Now the accuser is in the vision, he's in the dream, but he's not allowed to speak. My guess it's because he's already been speaking. And he's been accusing Joshua, the high priest. Can you hear the train of insults or accusations that have probably come? Joshua... You're a sinful man. You live among a sinful people. How can you dare to approach a holy God? The Holy One, Yahweh, he will not dwell in your presence. You'll be consumed. Joshua, you're a poser. You can't possibly serve in this capacity. See, we don't have to read the words to know what they are because many of us in this room are familiar with the voice of the accuser every day. You're a poser. Fraud. Don't you remember what you've done? How could God ever use you? How could any man ever want you? You're a mistake. I bet your parents wish that they never had you. You're such a disappointment. You'll never be free of that sin. You've tried to be rid of it before, but it never seems to work out. You'll always be dirty before the Lord. Now some of you guys in the room are like, Pastor Kyle, how do you know? Because this is not my first rodeo, you guys. You are not the first person to hear the accusations of the accuser. He's been in business for a long, long time. But there's others in the room right now who are like, Pastor Kyle, I don't even know what you're talking about here. Now, that could be both, that could either be really good news or really bad news. On the one hand, it could be really good news if you are secure in the truth of what Jesus has done for you. So that you rest in his finished work and know that you have an acceptance before the Father on the basis of what he has done. And so you just, you just don't hear those accusations and that voice play on repeat in your life. And if that's the case, praise the Lord. However, if you're here and you think, why would I need to be cleansed? That voice doesn't sound familiar. Then it might actually be really bad news for you. Because the truth is you don't see yourself rightly before God. You, you might be like a nine-year-old boy who thinks you're clean, but you got the wrong definition of what it means to be clean. But the good news for you today is that today might be the day of your cleansing. So let's continue. Verse 1, what does he say? Let's dive in. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? God rebukes Satan, the accuser, before he can get another word out of his mouth. He says, shut up, accuser. You don't get to talk. The Lord has rebuked you. And notice that the authority is not in question in this particular scene, is it? When Yahweh speaks, the enemy cowers. He is not in authority. He listens and submits even though he hates it. 
He says, God has chosen Jerusalem, like taking a log off of a burning fire and rescuing it from the fire so it's not consumed. So has the Lord chosen Jerusalem to be his people. You don't get to talk here. So Yahweh puts the accuser in his place. The angel of Yahweh puts the accuser in his place. But there's still a problem. Namely, Joshua is standing there with soiled garments. He's unclean before holy God. Even without the accuser's voice there to torment him, he still remains in that state of ceremonial uncleanness. And so God deals with it. Verse 4. The angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. Vestments just means robes. That's what a priest would wear. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, thus says the Lord of hosts, if you walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts. And I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Joshua The high priest of God is cleansed. His filthy garments are removed, and he is clothed in pure vestments or robes. The Old Testament gives us pictures of what Jesus does for us in the gospel. And here we have pictured in Joshua, the high priest, the glorious truth of our cleansing from sin. Joshua is made clean so that he can serve the Lord and discharge his duties as the high priest. Now let me ask you something. In that vision, in that story, what does Joshua do to cleanse himself? Nothing. He didn't do anything. It is done to him. The angel of the Lord speaks and it it happens. He is clothed in new clothes by another Now, this particular scene in Zechariah chapter 3 reminds me of another scene at the end of the Bible. Now, I'm going to be quoting a bunch of different passages, both in Zechariah and the rest of the Bible, and so you might feel a little bit of whiplash coming. Just know that they're going to be on the screen here, and I'm trying to connect the dots for you, so just buckle up and hang on tight, and we're going to see how the whole story fits together. Sound good? In Revelation, uh, one person, awesome. That means I got... I got Carolyn with me, and the rest of you guys are already thinking about something else. It's not even football season. There's no game. Pay attention. Here we go. (laughs) Revelation chapter 7. As we see this picture of Joshua being cleansed and given new clothes, listen to this in Revelation 7 verse 9. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. If you jump down a few more verses to verse 13, then one of the elders addressed me saying, who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? And I said to him, sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Once again here, we see God's people are pictured as being clothed in new spotless clothes. Clothes that we are told that have been made white and washed 
in the blood of the Lamb. Now, does that strike anybody as odd? Did anybody wash their clothes this week in blood? You're like, that's gross. Yeah, because if you put white clothes in blood, it's going to make them red, not white. That's weird. What's going on here? You wash clothes in water with soap. But the blood is a unique blood. It's the blood of the lamb, the sacrificial lamb, the one who interceded and became the sacrifice for sin. And washing ourselves or our clothes in this particular blood makes us clean. Spoiler, the lamb is Jesus, okay? We're just going to make that clear from the get-go. Now we get hints of this all the way back in Zechariah chapter 3. If you look with me at verses 8, 9, and 10... There's some weird apocalyptic language that helps us understand. Now hear, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servants the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts. And I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day." In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. So the angel of the Lord is speaking to Joshua, and then all of a sudden, he's speaking to Joshua and his friends, probably other priests that serve and minister with Joshua. If you're like, that's kind of weird. Remember, this is a dream. It's a vision. Weird things can happen, right? All of a sudden, you're there alone, and then you're there with people. So... He says to them, to Joshua and to the probably priests that have gathered, Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. Now, until this point, the angel of the Lord has been speaking with the high priest and then probably other priests about their duties in the temple and the cleansing that was needed for them. Now he mentions another servant, my servant the branch, as if we're supposed to know who that is. But aha, we do know who that is because we've been reading the story up until this point. Let me tell you about the branch. I'll give you just a couple instances of him being predicted in previous prophets. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1, for instance. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Hang on on that. Again in Jeremiah 23. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. And so what do we learn about this branch? We learn that this branch is actually going to be a king. It is a promise of the Messiah out of the stump of Jesse. Now, Jesse was King David's father, and so that's basically just tying him to the kingly line. Or a righteous branch of David, again, from his kingly line, he will come and he will reign as king and will deal wisely and will execute justice and will live in righteousness. Now, if you're feeling a little bit of whiplash here and said, I thought we were talking about the priesthood and now he's talking about a coming king, well then you're starting to grasp a little bit of probably what Joshua felt at this point. You see, unless, of course, the king or the branch that is to come, is also a priest and not just a king. In which case we should say, exactly. That's who the branch is going to be. 
He's going to be a king and priest. He's going to intercede and mediate for people, and he's going to rule, and he's going to reign. And we read in verse 9, For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, that's weird, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. Anybody lost yet? We got, yeah, we got one person being honest back there. Awesome. A, a single stone or a single jewel is placed before Joshua, and we're told that this stone has seven eyes on it. That's a freaky stone. Unless, of course, we understand a little bit about apocalyptic language. Apocalyptic language is meant to reveal something that they would have understand as symbolic. An eye, in their day, was, was a symbol of knowledge or the ability to see. The number seven is actually a complete number. And so if you see a stone with seven eyes on it, what you actually are seeing is something that has all sight or all knowledge of everything. And this stone is set before Joshua, and it's told about this, that on one day he will remove all of the iniquity of mankind. Does that ring any bells? Anybody? Yeah. Yeah. Does that sound like any day that you've ever heard of before? Perhaps Good Friday? Where the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? Where the stone that was not cut by any human hands that we saw in Daniel is rejected, pierced, shedding his blood so that those who put their faith and trust in him can be cleansed and his kingdom will rule and reign over all for all eternity. How's that for a thread connecting the rest of the Bible together? See, the rest of Zechariah does this in many ways, pointing ahead to the one who is to come. Now, I know I'm not preaching the whole book, but I just want to give you a glimpse of four other promises that are made so that you can see this story woven together with the thread being Jesus, connecting it all, that he's the one that salvation history is about. What do we learn about this king who is to come from Zechariah? In chapter 9, verses 9 and 10, we learn that the king to come will come to Jerusalem in humility on the foal of a donkey. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, we're told. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt the foal of a donkey. And I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. When did that happen? That happened on Palm Sunday as Jesus marches into Jerusalem on the foal of a donkey, and people say, Hosanna, blessed is the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Or again, we learn that this king will be a rejected shepherd who will be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. In Zechariah 11, verses 12 and 13, Then I said to them, If it seems good to you, give me my wages, but if not, keep them. And they weighed out my wages, 30 pieces of silver. Then the Lord said to me, Throw it to the potter, the lordly price at which I was priced by them. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. Jesus had one of his inner 12 disciples by the name of Judas agreed to betray him. Do you know what the purchase price was? 30 pieces of silver. When Judas was convicted of his sin, he went and he brought the money back to the temple. And they said, no, we can't take your blood money. And so he throws it in there. And as it scrambles and 
probably reverberates around on the stone. They take the 30 pieces of silver and they buy what's called the potter's field. We also learn that this king to come will be a rejected shepherd, that when struck, his followers will scatter. In Zechariah 13, 7, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little one. When Jesus was arrested and betrayed, all of his closest followers, all of his followers were scattered and ran in fear. That happened in Jesus' life. Finally, the king to come will be pierced for our sin in Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. Anybody uh, getting a little whiplash yet? I want you to be overwhelmed by how much the Old Testament speaks of Jesus. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy. So when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. Jesus was pierced for your iniquities. He was hung on a Roman cross, being pierced by nails. I know that many of you are thinking, as we read these promises, are they really talking about Jesus, or did we just see these things back in, in him later? I mean, some of them are specific, but others are kind of vague. They could have applied to Jesus. They could have applied to other people. Are you sure that Jesus' followers weren't just reading back into his life these promises? My answer to that, I think, is yes and no. That's a great question. See, what we have to admit at the very beginning is that Jesus' followers were so steeped in the words of the prophets. They knew them. They meditated on them so that when Jesus was doing these things, they said, I've heard that before. I get it. Now, don't get me wrong. Jesus' disciples were wrong all the time about his role as Messiah, right? I mean, how many times in the Gospels do we see Jesus correcting them, rebuking them, saying, oh yeah, that my, my kingdom's not like that at all. Or, or we're not going to do that. Even after the resurrection, they're like, are you going to at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And they're like, and Jesus is like, it's not like that, guys. I mean, if there's ever a face palm moment, right? Like, dies, rises again, and they're like, we still don't get it. And yet, after the Spirit of God comes on the day of Pentecost, and these men begin teaching about Jesus, as they are steeped in the prophetic tradition, they're like, that was actually about him. And they begin to see all of these things in the story where they're like, it makes sense. Now, are there any fans of the Marvel Cinematic Universe here? Yeah? A few people who want to admit it in church? Okay. I'm a big fan. Uh, one of the things that fans of the MCU love to point out is what are called Easter eggs, right? Little things in the films that are put in earlier films that don't make sense for four or five or six or seven more films, right? But then after you've seen them all and you go back and rewatch it, you're like, how did I miss that? It was right there. They totally knew what the rest of the story was going to be like. Might I suggest to you that the Bible is kind of like that? It is. And the prophecies about Jesus are kind of like that. So that when they hear that Judas betrays Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, they're like, I read that somewhere. That was the price that God said the people of God put on God because that was all he was worth to them. Or I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. Or they will look on him whom they have pierced. 
And they said, guys, it's all about him. He's here. Don't you see? Hey, maybe we should do a sermon series pointing this out from every book of the Bible. What do you guys think? Back to the story for one more amazing hint. We're going to get back to Zechariah 3. I'm glad a few of you guys are enjoying this. I know I am. The cleansing provided to Joshua here wasn't easy, and it was incredibly costly to the one who did it. Many people believe that the Old Testament appearances of the angel of Yahweh or the angel of the Lord are actually pre-incarnate appearances of Jesus the Son. And I tend to agree with them. You see, when you read about the angel of the Lord, sometimes even in this story, you're like, wait a second, is, is Yahweh speaking or is the angel of the Lord speaking? And, and it's kind of fuzzy, and, and the angel of the Lord kind of speaks with a, an authority beyond any of the angels that they might have. And so it's meant to be kind of fuzzy and vague that way because I think it's, he's an angel, but he's more than that. He's more than a mere angel. In light of that, how crazy is it to consider what it would cost the one cleansing and clothing Joshua, the high priest, to provide this for him? He says, take off his filthy clothes and clothe him with pure vestments. And the one speaking that, I think, is the one who would pay for it. So how do we apply this passage to our lives today. I get it that it's about 500 years before Jesus. It had to do with cleansing the priesthood so that the temple and sacrificial system could get up and going again. And in many ways that happened. Joshua was cleansed so that he is now equipped and able to serve as a mediator and a high priest and provide intercession and sacrifice for the cleansing of his people. And they did this for another 500 years. But the book of Hebrews reminds us something about these sacrifices offered year after year in chapter 10, verse 1. The old system under the law of Moses was only a shadow, a dim preview of the good things to come, not the good things themselves. The sacrifices under that system were repeated again and again, year after year, but they were never able to provide perfect cleansing for those who came to worship. If they could have provided perfect cleansing, the sacrifices would have stopped. For the worshipers would have been purified once for all time. And their feelings of guilt would have disappeared. But instead, those sacrifices actually reminded them of their sins year after year. For it is not possible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. You see, those sacrifices reminded them that a greater sacrifice was needed, offered by a perfect mediator and high priest, one who wouldn't just be a priest and a sacrifice, but also a king who could rule and reign in righteousness. This is achieved by Jesus as he fulfills all of these offices. The true and greater high priest, the once-for-all sacrifice for sins, whose blood provides our ultimate cleansing. And in the greater king, who can and will rule in righteousness so that this will become true. Every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree one day. So how do I apply this to my life today or help you apply it to your life today? Three things. First, you need to be cleansed. Soiled clothing provides a vivid picture of the state of our souls. See, sin isn't just the wrong things 
that we do. It is the destruction that's caused by the wrong things that we do and the wrong things done to us. It leaves a stain. Both the sin that we commit and the sin that has been done to us leaves a stain on our souls. It leaves us feeling dirty and defiled and stained and used. But the good news of the gospel is not just that we are forgiven. We are. But that we are cleansed from the stain of our sin. We are given new clothes. The righteousness of Jesus clothing and cleansing us. So the question becomes, how then do I experience that cleansing? The Apostle John writes in a letter of 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so like a prescription, we're invited to confess our sins knowing that he is faithful and just to not only forgive sin, but to cleanse you. Just like Joshua didn't do anything to be cleansed, so you don't do anything other than confess your sin and believe in Jesus. And he cleanses the very stain on your soul. He washes you and makes you new. Amen? Second, if that's true, then you should live like you're clean, not dirty. What do I mean by that? I mean that many of you have been cleansed by Jesus, but you still don't feel clean. You think of yourself as defiled, worthless, damaged goods. You keep going back to that sin over and over again, and you can't seem to kick it. Can I just tell you, brother, sister, in Christ, that is not how God, your heavenly Father, sees you anymore. He has clothed you in new robes, paid for by his son, washed, cleansed, and made new. You simply must believe it and live like it's true. See, the accuser only has power over our lives when we listen to his lies. But look at this picture. Before even a word is out of the accuser's mouth, the Lord rebukes Satan He rebukes him. Brother, sister, you are not worthless. You are not dirty or defiled. Look at what God has done to make you worthy. Now, if you still feel worthless, there might be an element of pride in your soul that remains. What you're saying, even without explicitly saying it, is, God, what I think of myself matters more than what you think of me. What I believe about me is more true than what you tell me about me. And that, my friends, is a lie. A lie that has great power, but a lie nonetheless. I don't know what's happened to you. I don't know what you've done. But you know what? God does. And he sent Jesus anyway. Think about that. He didn't wait for you to clean up your act. While you were yet sinners, Christ died for you. And it wasn't in ignorance of after saving you, knowing that you were going to screw up again. No, he knew that. He knows the end from the beginning, and he did it anyway. Now, isn't that a better truth to live into? 
a better truth over your life that I am righteous and clean in the Lord Jesus Christ? Isn't that what should define my life rather than what happened to me or what I did? Brothers and sisters, the key to healing, the key to freedom is to believe what you say you believe and begin to live and relate to God as if it's actually true. Begin to relate and live before each other as if that's actually true, because it is. It will set you free. Third, those who have been cleansed shouldn't jump back into the mud. What do I mean by that? Imagine yourself and your salvation like this. You're drowning in a pit of mud. You can't get to the firm ground. You're sinking, and your head goes under so that you can no longer see the light. You lose hope, and the mud begins to go into your lungs. But then you feel someone jump into the mud pit with you and rescue you. At great cost to himself, at great cost to his own clothes, he gets you on firm ground. And then he takes warm water and cleanses you and washes you and gives you new clean clothes to wear. Helps you to see the clear blue sky and feel the warm sun on your face and lets you rest on the soft green grass. But then the first chance you get, you stand up and you jump right back in the mud. Why would you do that? You weren't created to sink in the mud. You were created to live. Some of you have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, but then jumped right back into the mud. And so now you think, you know what, Pastor Kyle, that's me, I'm, I'm beyond hope. But his grace is so scandalous that he jumps in again after you, again and again, and washes you, and sets you on the solid ground. And maybe today is the day that he's jumping in after you. Don't jump back in the mud. Don't believe the lie that sin is the way to truly live and have fun. Believe the truth that the one who rescued you actually wants you to live and laugh and experience his blessing and his love. You weren't created for the mud of sin. You were created to enjoy him and the world that he has made. So this apocalyptic dream from Zechariah 3 reminds us that we need to be cleansed. That when we are cleansed, we should live like we're clean. And that we shouldn't jump back in the mud, but rather live the life that God has invited us into, the life we were created for. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word, for how these images and these parallels Drive the truth of your word and your truth into our hearts. I pray, God, that we would believe it and that we would live in light of it. I pray, God, that we would even now confess our sin to you, knowing that you are faithful and just to not only forgive us but to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God, make us clean. Help us to believe that it's true and to live like it's true. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.